we keep journeying through the book of Revelation. And amazingly, we are on chapter 13 tonight. As last week, we met uh, the dragon uh, as Satan. And we saw that he was cast out of heaven. And he went to make war with the woman. Because as he's cast out of heaven, the male child was brought up to heaven. So now the only one left for him to make war with now is the woman, as I said, represented Israel. Here, as we went through the three mothers of uh, Revelation chapter 12 last week, and as we met the dragon, who was Satan, and he is going to take the form of the father figure of the anti-trinity. We're going to complete the anti-trinity tonight with meeting the antichrist and meeting the false prophet and you're going to see that satan's kind of imitating the father figure there you'll see the antichrist is imitating the son and you'll see the false prophet is imitating the holy spirit and so we have an anti-trinity that serves as a false god uh, for the end times that deceives many and leads them to destruction so it's kind of a dark chapter. Are you ready for that? So it's going to be kind of a dark chapter tonight. And uh, it gets a lot better next week, but you've got to come back next week uh, for, for the light. Okay? So it's pretty fitting that it's storming, getting ready to storm around my house as we talk about the Antichrist and the false prophet. Let's enter into prayer, and we'll begin our journey tonight. Our Father and our God, we come to you in Jesus' name. Lord, we're so thankful for that name as we look at a chapter like tonight that a lamb has defeated the dragon and these two beasts that come out of the sea and out of the earth. Lord, we're so thankful for you. We're so thankful that we're on the winning team, Lord, because you have won, you are victorious. And so Lord, what can we say, but we are yours. And we're so grateful for your love and your attention towards us. So be honored tonight with our study, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's get rolling here. Now, our scene is going to switch from heaven, where we saw the dragon cast out, the male child brought up, and now we're back on the earth with the dragon. And in 13.1, it says, then I stood on the sand of the sea. Now, some of your versions say what? It says, then he stood on the sand of the sea, right? Some of your versions do. I happen to think those versions are correct. I think the word should be he and not I there. And the he would be the dragon, Satan, as he's now going to beckon the beasts from the sea and from the earth. Okay. So I or he stood on the sand of the sea and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and 10 horns and on his horns, 10 crowns and on his heads, a blasphemous name. Now, this is the antichrist. This is the figure of antichrist here. Now, <clears throat> the fact that he's coming, <coughs> excuse me, the fact that he's coming out of the sea, the sea has two general meanings in scriptures, meaning number one, uh, the sea refers to Gentiles uh, because you have to cross the sea to get to them type of thing from Israel. So this could be a Gentile uh, ruler, as many people believe uh, he'll come out of Rome. And, uh, and if that's the case, the sea then would be the Mediterranean Sea that it's referred to. 
And scripture, when it basically just says the word sea, usually means the Mediterranean. That was their major, major sea. They didn't really know about any land west of the Mediterranean. They just consider that kind of to be the end of the world. So sometimes I'll refer to it as the Great Sea. And uh, so this beast is rising out of that sea. And uh, as I said, last chapter, we met Satan in the form of the dragon. Now we have the Antichrist. And at the end of the chapter, we'll have the false prophet. This is the anti-trinity. Now, this beast that's rising out of the sea was first introduced to us in the book of Daniel. Okay, so Revelation is going to take a very heavy Daniel flavor from this point forward. So I'm going to be in Daniel chapter 7, and I want to take a look at exactly what we have here in this, this beast, this Antichrist beast, as prophesied from Daniel. Now, I just want to note really quickly that you're not going to find many or any other religions that point to other books to prove their points. In other words, the Old Testament <clears throat> was around and completed 400 years before Christ was ever born. And yet, these things were spoken about, about Christ in the end times so well and so accurately, long before even our New Testament was formed. So, in uh, Revelation chapter 7, we'll pick it up in verse 1. It says, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head while on his bed. Then he wrote down the dream, telling the main facts. Daniel spoke, saying, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. So there's that term I just told you about, the great sea would be the Mediterranean there. And four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. I watched till its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man and a man's heart was given to it. And suddenly another beast, a second, like a bear. It was raised up on one side and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And they said thus to it, arise, devour much flesh. After this, I looked and there was another like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible. This is our beast of Revelation 13 here. Dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. Those iron teeth are going to become, are the iron toes, if you remember from Daniel chapter 2 with the, the dream of the statue. Okay, now they're the teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it and had 10 horns. There's the 10 horns of our beast. I was considering the horns and there was another horn, a little one coming up among them before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. And there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking pompous words. So the pompous speaking, the pompous words are a clue that connects us to uh, our revelation beast here. So this is the most hideous of the fourth be four beasts. And if you're familiar with the book of Daniel, you'll know that these four beasts correspond to Daniel chapter 2 with the uh, Nebuchadnezzar statue. So just in case you're not quite familiar with what I'm talking about and you're already in Daniel 7, let's just backtrack a bit to Daniel chapter 2. And let's look at 
Um, starting in verse 31, another picture in another dream of this uh, beast. In verse 31, it says, You, O king, this is Daniel interpreting his dream, were watching, and behold, a great image, this great image whose splendor was excellent, stood before you, and its form was awesome. This image's head was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found, and the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Now, so the statue is going to be interpreted by Daniel to say the gold head is you, King Nebuchadnezzar, and the nation of Babylon. The silver chest and arms is the Medes and the Persians, as the two arms reflect two kingdoms. And that was the kingdom that immediately followed the Babylonian kingdom in history. Immediately following that kingdom was the Grecian kingdom, led by Alexander the Great, represented by the legs. And then the feet um, is the Roman Empire. And we know that that follows successively in history as it does in the dream. Now the, the Roman Empire has a stone that's cut out of a mountain that comes and crushes the feet of the statue, causing all the other kingdoms to fall and be crushed. And that stone just grows and grows and becomes an eternal kingdom. And it has to come during the Roman Empire because that's how the dream goes. Well, guess when Jesus Christ came? He came during Roman rule, as the visions from hundreds of years previous dictated he must. Now, what's interesting is, if you go to Luke chapter 20, let's connect some dots here back in the New Testament. In Luke, the 20th chapter, <clears throat> as you see, this stone crushes the feet of the statue, which represents the Roman Empire. In Luke chapter 20, as Jesus is talking about the wickedness of the Pharisees and so forth, he says in verse 17, he says, he looked at them and said, what then is what then is this that is written, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. So he's referring to himself as a stone and not just any stone, but the chief cornerstone, the most important stone in any building. And then in verse 18, it says, whoever falls on that stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. There's the talk of the Daniel 2 stone grinding to powder the feet of the statue uh, that represents Rome, okay? <clears throat> All right, so now, this beast has seven heads and ten horns like the dragon, but he's clearly distinct from the dragon. The dragon is Satan. The beast is the Antichrist. Now, <clears throat> when we say Antichrist, anti is not referring to being against Christ. We use anti as the word against. It much more in the Greek means in the place of, a substitute for. So you're going to see that this beast becomes a substitute for Jesus Christ, a false Christ. So you'll get a false Christ in this, and you'll get a false prophet in this chapter as well. All right. Now, the Antichrist, um, 
will be more appealing than he will be appalling. People think that, gosh, if I saw the satanic figure, I'd be appalled at him. Well, you gotta remember the world is that very much attracted to him for various reasons. Um, and so we have what John, in the author of Revelation, in 1 John 1, 3, he'll say there's a spirit of Antichrist, a spirit of Antichrist. And what that leads people to understand is this, okay? And I think this is key, one of the keys, is that Antichrist is both believed to be a future person and also a future political idea that's out there, okay? The revived Roman Empire would represent that idea, but he would also in all likelihood be led by some sort of person that uh, this is speaking of here. So now, now many take the seven heads that this beast has to be seven successive kingdoms from political history. So they'll, they'll point in political history to seven successive Roman kingdoms mostly, but um, uh, or Roman reigns, but some take it to be seven successive kingdoms like we saw four of them with the statue. Well, the 10 horns are kings that, who will rule in the future under the beast power. So these people would say that the heads are kingdoms from the past and the horns are, are rulers in the future. So this would be both a look backwards and a look forwards in this beast. Because we see Revelation 17, which is a future event, talk about this, uh, his reign as well, which will be in the future. So what I gave you there near the bottom of your first page in the notes is other terms that refer to the same beast so that as you come across those terms, you'll understand it's talking about the same thing. In Daniel chapter eight, verse 23, he's known as the little horn. Daniel 9, 26, he's the prince who shall come. Daniel 11, he's the willful king. And I believe, if you go to John chapter five, I believe this is what Jesus is referring to. It's maybe a bit debatable, but I don't think it's too debatable. In John chapter five, verse uh, 30, 43. Sorry, I didn't put a bookmark in this one. John five forty three. Jesus says, I have come in my father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. I believe that's, referring to this Antichrist who will come in his own name and be received uh, by the Jews left on the earth here, um, <clears throat> or anybody left on the earth at this time. All right, verse two, back to Revelation 13. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard, his feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and his great authority. Now, we just read something with those same three animals in it, didn't we, from Daniel. But notice that in Revelation, they're given in the reverse order. Okay, we go from lion to bear to leopard in Daniel, and here we go from leopard to bear to lion here. And the best understanding I have of this is because Daniel is looking into the future and sees these kingdoms unfolding in, in his future, where John is behind it looking in the past at them, 
and giving them in the order that he sees them in reverse order because he's looking um, backwards at them. So these, these beasts, these animals, <clears throat> talk the leopard speaks of swiftness, which uh, represented Alexander the Great who conquered the known world by age 33. Um, the bear would re is represented by the crushing strength combined with the fierceness and authority of a lion make this beast more dreadful than all the others. All right, verse three. Well, at the end of verse two, it says, the dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. So the dragon, who is Satan, is giving great authority to this beast, which is Antichrist. So when Jesus, at the end of Matthew's gospel, he says, all authority has been given to me from his father. So you see the father figure giving authority to the son figure. That's exactly what's going on now with these two. Satan, the father figure, is giving authority to this beast who's the Antichrist, the son figure. Okay, so we see that similarity going on there. All right. <clears throat> Verse three, and I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded and his deadly wound was healed and all the world marveled and followed the beast. So now we see an imitation of Christ, don't we? Death and resurrection. We see this imitation of Jesus here. Now, Many see, see that this healing from this mortal wound, they say, yes, it may be a person that actually experiences a mortal wound and rises from that as one of the many signs and wonders that you'll see going on with the false prophet and this beast, okay, and the Antichrist. Others think that this is indicating the revived Roman Empire, that the Roman Empire died uh, several centuries after Christ, and will be revived in the end times so that people will be shocked and amazed at the restoration of the Roman Empire and will consider that the recovery from the lethal wound. Some say it's both. Just, there's a lot of scholars that say, I think it's both gonna be the Roman Empire and an individual there that recovers miraculously from a deadly wound. Now, as the debate goes back and forth between is this the Roman Empire, is this an actual man or is it both? certainly the more secure biblical support comes that he's a man, a future man. Why? Well, I give you several reasons here. A, he's worshiped as a God. That's more likely to be a person than a political system that's worshiped as a God. You'll see that in the fourth verse that we're coming up on. In the 12th verse, you'll see that an image of him is set up. We're much more familiar with images of, of men being set up than images of political systems or of cities. C, he's identified the, by the number of man, the, the number 666 that we're going to get to at the end of our study. Um, it says that's a number of man, so that would indicate more that he's a man. D, he's damned and thrown into perdition in chapter 17 and then into the lake of fire in chapter 20. That would certainly be more indicative of a person than it would be of a system. And it's also a consideration that this is a man like Judas possessed by Satan. Okay, so this would be somebody that actually got possessed by Satan just like Judas did. And we're going to go over that episode of Satan's possession by Satan in John chapter 13 a little bit later. All right, verse 4. So they worship the dragon who gave authority to the beast. And they worship the beast 
saying, who is like the beast and who is able to make war with him? So they worship the dragon and the dragon is Satan and they also worship the beast. Just like Jesus talks about, if you see him, you've seen his father, that he's worthy of the worship of the father. And you see here the anti-father and anti-son are worshiped uh, by the people left on the earth. Now, I'd love to point out to you here in Matthew chapter four, I'd love to point out to you in Matthew chapter four, that Jesus received the same invitation. He received the same invitation to worship this dragon. Chapter four, starting in verse eight. It says, again, the devil took him, Jesus, up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. Him only you shall serve. It says, then the devil left him and behold, the angels came and ministered to him. All right, so Jesus received the same invitation to worship Satan as people will during the tribulation, get the invitation to worship Satan. Their example was found in Matthew 4. They're to say, get away from me, Satan. Um, you're to worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. But instead, the world and their sinful condition sadly will be exercising in worship of the dragon and of the beast. Now people will say, I can't imagine worshiping a satanic figure. I can't even imagine my unsaved friends worshiping a satanic figure. Look at Germany's response to Hitler. Look at uh, the responses to Stalin and Mao and and people, if people follow these wicked, evil men, they get brainwashed, they get fooled, they get deceived, and they end up participating in some of the greatest evils that can only be attributed to Satan. It's beyond the human hatred and evil, and people nationally participate in that stuff. So um, it would not be much of a surprise to me to see the world worshiping the beast and the dragon. All right. Verse five. Now remember, we good? Everybody hear me? Okay, we're good, we're good here. Yeah, I'm sorry, Michael in the back just lost connection completely, but, but uh, we're good here, so we'll keep going. All right, now, um, So, they, were, so uh, they, they say here at verse four, who is like the beast? Remember what I said when Michael fought the dragon? What does Michael's name mean? Who is like God, right? Who is like God? So that's what the archangel Michael brings to us is this, nobody's like God. Who can be possibly like our God? And now what, what does the beast pull off? He pulls off the world saying, who is like the beast? And who can possibly make war with him? So you see these false imitations going back and forth. They're directly imitating the Holy Trinity, aren't they? And that's part of the deception of the world. All right, verse five. And he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. And he was given authority to continue for 42 months. Then he opened his mouth and blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, 
and those who dwell in heaven. So these 42 months, you keep hearing about 1260 days, you keep hearing about three and a half years, you keep hearing about 42 months. It's all the same time period. Don't be confused by the different terms. It's all the three and a half years. Now, some scholars feel it's the first three and a half years of the seven year tribulation. Others feel it's the second half. Based on the introduction of Satan and the beast and all that, I'm believing we're in the second half of this tribulation uh, during this time. That is disagreed upon by some, uh, but I just see it as the most wicked part of the whole ordeal. He blasphemes God, his tabernacle, his tabernacle, and those who have already been raptured up to heaven. Okay, since they're now out of his reach, he can't make war. He's going to make war with God's people on the earth, those that get saved during the tribulation time and so forth, those that got marked as 144,000, he's going to make war against those that are remaining that believe in God on the earth through conversion, or but they haven't been raptured, but they came to faith. He's making war on them. And he's blaspheming. That's the most he can do about those who have been raptured. Those that are in heaven. He can't touch them in warfare, so he, he blasphemes them along with God and his tabernacle, his dwelling place. Verse 7. <clears throat> it was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. So now you see his world rule going to happen here. And he's granted authority to make war with the saints. This is the war, I believe, of the last chapter uh, in verse 13, when it says, Now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. Remember we said that woman would be Israel, and uh, making war with Israel, and those who, he's not making war with those who follow him and worship him, he's making war with those who are refusing to do so. So that's the saints that he's making war with. And this would be the woman that he's persecuting in the previous chapter. And it says, and to overcome them. Now, what does it mean that he's actually overcoming God's people here? Well, he, can over, he cannot overcome their faith. Their faith is what cannot be moved. Their faith is secure. Their faith is certain. Their faith, over, they have a faith that overcomes the world. So how are they being overcome? They can be overcome physically. They become martyrs. They're, they can be overcome unto death. Because in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, when Jesus declares that all who confess that he's the Christ, the Son of the living God, will form his church, that's a rock upon which his church will be founded, he then says, and the gates of Hades cannot prevail against it. Okay, so their faith, their confession cannot be overcome but of course their physical lives can. And we got that verse, I believe last week, they did not love their lives unto death. They took death before they gave up their confession. All right. Verse eight. All who dwell on the earth will worship him whose names have not been written in the book of life of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. All right, two thoughts on this. First of all, He's going to command worship. He's going to threaten the lives of those who will not worship. He commands worship. This is like the former, former Roman Empire um, emperors. They demanded to be worshipped as a god. And the residents of Rome were given a pinch of incense that they'd have to burn before a statue of the Caesar and declare out loud, Caesar is Lord. Or they could be killed. 
Well, what Christians would do in that moment, instead of saying Caesar is Lord, they introduced a phrase that you're very familiar with and probably didn't know where it came from. But it came from Christians in front of statues of Caesars um, holding incense and being demanded to say Caesar is Lord. And their, their response would be this. They would say, Jesus is Lord. And they would go to their death. Our faith has been handed down to us by many, many heroes. Many, many heroes that their confession that you and I have instantly cost them their lives. Now, as we talked about, Lenin, Stalin, Hitler, Mao, they all pulled off this type of worship, um, as well as the Caesars. The Caesars will pull off this type of worship as well. Now, this talks about those who worship the beast are those whose names are not found in the Lamb's Book of Life. So just know this, worshiping the beast, receiving the mark of the beast, all those things, and having your name in the Lamb's Book of Life are mutually exclusive events. Both cannot happen. If your name is in the book, you're not gonna receive the mark. If you receive the mark, your name's not in the book. They're mutually exclusive events. They can't, it's not a both and or an either or, it's one or the other with those two things. All right, I just want to talk about this title, The Lamb That Was Slain From the Foundation of the World. We all have titles at work. People call us something about our work. Jesus's title for his work is The Lamb That Was Slain From the Foundation of the World. What a title our Messiah has there for himself. This means that both our fallenness and God's love for us are spoken of before we're ever created. Our fallenness is spoken about now before we're created, and God's great redeeming love for us is spoken about us before we're ever even created. This stuff happened before the foundation of the world. And just like Jesus and the Father, other things happened before the foundation of the world in the Bible, and I gave you some examples here. What happened before the foundation of the world? Jesus and the Father shared glory together before the foundation of the world. The Father loved Jesus before the foundation of the world. The work of Jesus was described before the foundation of the world. The redeemed were chosen before the foundation of the world. Our names were written in the book of life before the foundation of the world. And the kingdom of heaven was prepared before the foundation of the world. And you can look all of those up in the verses that I gave you in the same order that I just read the descriptions. John 17, 5, John 17, 24, 1 Peter 1, Ephesians 1, Revelation 17, and Matthew 25, in the order that I gave the descriptions, you can find those. All those things were determined to be done before the foundation of the world. So, last week we talked about Satan and his activity on our planet. Tonight, right now, we're talking about the Antichrist and his activity on our planet. A little later tonight, we're gonna to talk about the false prophet and his activity on our planet. And all of that, you were redeemed before the foundation of the world. You've been safe through that as you come to your confession of faith. Uh, that's why the chapter one of Revelation, the first words we're here of Jesus Christ are to his apostle John, do not be afraid. And as we are deep into Revelation 13 and this paramount wickedness and the evil that is indescribable, okay, we watch the news and we think we see evil, that's really nothing compared to what's coming uh, in, in these end times. So, 
We are not to be afraid. All right, so verse 9. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. Okay, that's a solemn warning to pay attention. Verse 10. He who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He who kills with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. What is the patience and the faith of the saints? It's found in Galatians 6, 7. What do we see in the dynamic that's playing out here? God will not be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. To think that you can sow evil and not reap a harvest of evil is to mock God. To think that you can sow kingdom work and not reap kingdom reward is mocking God. You will be rewarded for your kingdom work and anything working against the kingdom will be punished. It says God is not going to be mocked in that. A man will reap what he sows. Here it says if you lead people into captivity, then you're going into captivity. If you've killed with the sword, you shall be killed with the sword. So a man shall reap what he sows is being played out for us there. Now, <clears throat> okay, so let's identify if we can this Antichrist. All right. Now, how many of you just came up with a name as soon as I said that? How many of you brought up one of our recent presidents? Okay. Um, current president, um, any number of people, uh, you, you know, listen, confession, you ready for a confession? Look at you on the edge of your seat. You can't wait to hear my sin. That's wonderful of you guys. All right. Confession is this. One of the main reasons why for 25 years of studying the Bible, I've stayed away from Revelation teaching it like this is because of all of the constant opinions about who the Antichrist is, what this number 666 means. They are so all over the place that you don't know who to trust. You don't know, you don't know the, the answers you're getting. You don't know how those people got those answers. And you don't know what kind of shaky foundation they're coming from to deliver those answers. And, and to get any opinion on this at all, you, just to me, it always felt like it's going to require so much study and research. And you really got to choose a hermeneutic. You got to choose a dynamic of how you understand symbolism. And then you got to hope you choose the right one and, and then uncover it all. So it's a crazy, crazy thing. All right. So with that, I'm going to, you, you know what I'm going to say next, I hope. You're going to say, you're going to look in the Bible for clues of what this stuff is. I'm not looking in the news, okay? Because 100 years ago, the names that we come up with that we think today weren't even born yet, and they had all their opinions about the Antichrist, and ours are totally different. And that goes generation to generation to generation, okay? So I'm pretty sure it's none of you, so let's eliminate that right now. I promise you it's not me, so let's take that out of the equation. And now we're much smaller number, okay? And we'll go from there now. So, first of all, when we look at the Bible, we get a clue here, and it's just a clue. I'm not going to say it, it's overly convincing of anything. But we see 
in Revelation 17 and Revelation 20. In Revelation 17, this Antichrist, it says, is thrown into perdition. He's thrown into perdition. Now, what has aided my study of the Bible greatly over the years is word studies. When you see similar words used in different areas, you check those out, and a lot of times you get some cool ideas. So, let's look at, right now, John 17, verse 12. John 17, verse 12. In the high priestly prayer, Jesus says this to his Father, While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition. Now, who is that? He's referring to Judas there. Now, I'm not saying Judas is the Antichrist. What I'm saying is this. Judas prefigures for us the Antichrist. He's a prefigurement of this future person. Uh, of the Antichrist. What else do we see with Judas here? Well, <clears throat> if we go to John chapter 12, John chapter 12, the first eight verses, let's look at that. John 12, 1 through 8. Let's see what else it tells us about Judas here. And before we read John 12, 1 through 8, know that at the end of this chapter, when we get to the end of this chapter, verse 17, we're going to read this about the Antichrist. It says, and that no one may buy or sell except the one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. <coughs> so, the, and that's referring to the Antichrist, even though it's in the false prophets paragraph, it's referring to the Antichrist, and I'll point that out when we get there. But... The Antichrist is going to be in charge of buying and selling. He's, a, he's, he's going to perdition, and Jesus says the son of perdition is Judas Iscariot, correct? Well, let's look at Judas Iscariot in uh, John chapter 12. Then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. There they made him a supper. And Martha served, but Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with them. Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii? Now a denarii is about a year's wage, and a denarii would take the form of a silver coin. Why was it not found, um, I'm sorry, sold uh, for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and he had the money box and he used to take what was put in it. Now, if you're a gang of 12 and you've got to elect a treasurer, what do you look for in a person that you elect treasurer of your group? Trustworthiness. Somebody you can depend on, somebody you trust. Guess who that was for the apostles? The one they trusted was Judas Iscariot. When it came to their money and the care for their money, they looked to him. Give it to Judas. He's the trustworthy one. Isn't that amazing? Okay? He's a treasure. Now, what does he say here? 
He says, this, this should have been sold. This is very expensive. Okay, they, they say in today's money, it's about $50,000. Now, why is she carrying around $50,000 worth of Chanel number no. five here? Because this is probably her, her mohar, it's called. It's her gift to her future husband. A father would give his daughter a gift that she would present to the husband on the wedding day. This is probably her wedding gift. So what is she recognizing Jesus as? Her bridegroom. She's getting it way more than the 12 apostles were getting it at this time because they refused to acknowledge anything where Jesus would say he's going to die. And she's anointing his body for burial, he said. So she gets it. Okay, she gets it. It's a beautiful picture here. Now, Judas estimates this could have been sold for 300 denarii, 300 pieces of silver. That's what this was worth to Mary a year's wage, 300 denarii. And yet Judas would not sell this ointment, but he would sell his rabbi for a tithe of that, for a tenth of that, for 30 pieces of silver. He would betray Jesus, one-tenth of the value of this perfume. Isn't that amazing? Now, <clears throat> So Judas here is in charge of buying and selling for the apostles. Isn't that interesting? Go with me to the next chapter, John chapter 13. John chapter 13, let's look at starting in verse 21. John 13, 21. This is at the Last Supper. It says, when Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, most assuredly I say to you, one of you will betray me. Then the disciples looked at one another, perplexed about whom he spoke. Listen, when Jesus said, one of you 12 will betray me, their first question is this, is it me? Is it me? The apostle John, the apostle of Jesus' love has to say, is it me? Okay, why? Because Judas didn't look anything like a betrayer. They walked with this guy for three years and they could not identify him as the betrayer. Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Simon Peter therefore motioned to him and asked who it was of whom he spoke. Then leaning back on Jesus' breast, he said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Now after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. Here's the possession the satanic possession of Judas Iscariot. Now, Satan is in Judas right now. Sa uh, Judas is Satan in the flesh. He's Satan incarnate. Jesus is God in the flesh, God incarnate. And they're both dipping bread into the same dish. Of all the artifacts from the Bible, Ark of the Covenant, the cross, things like that. I think I might want this dish more than any other artifact. Because the hand of God and the hand of Satan occupied this bowl at the same time, at the same moment. It's the ultimate clash of good and evil. And within 24 hours after this clash of good and evil, both of them are hanging on trees. Saint, uh, Judas in his suicide, Jesus on his cross. So what's the difference between these two guys if they get the same result after 
confronting each other in good and evil. Well, only one of them gets up again, right? Only one of them gets up again. And if you're like me, right now you're thinking of Rocky II, where Rocky and Apollo both are on the canvas and the count is going to 10 and no, nobody knows who's gonna win. And at the last second at the count of 10, Rocky pulls himself up and is victorious. Apollo falls to the campus, canvas in defeat and we celebrate Rocky. Okay, there's no Apollo 1, Apollo, oh, there is Apollo 1, Apollo 2, but those are rocket ships. They're not movies, all right? So that was embarrassing. But um, so, <clears throat> so one of them gets up again and that's the winner. And that's Jesus Christ, of course. All right, now, I haven't even made my point yet. Then Jesus said to him, what, do you, what you do, do quickly. But no one at the table knew for what reason he said this to him. For some thought, because Judas had the money box that Jesus had said to him, buy those things we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. In other words, who of the 12 is in charge of buying? Judas. Now with the spikenard of Mary, who was in charge of selling? Judas. What's one of the identifiers of Antichrist? He's in charge of buying and selling. Okay, so... I believe Judas Iscariot is the prefigurement of our future Antichrist. All right. <clears throat> now, we are on the false prophet, starting at verse 11. We've talked about the dragon, who is Satan, who serves as the father figure of the anti-trinity. We just talked about the Antichrist. Christ is the son of God, Antichrist. Christ plays the role of the son who receives authority from Satan, imitates Satan, I mean, imitates Jesus as far as recovering from a deadly wound and is in charge of buying and selling like Judas Iscariot. Now, we are on the false prophet. Verse 11, then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth and he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. Okay, so this is one who outward appearances are very lamb-like and non-offensive, but inwardly, his voice reveals what's in the heart. He's a dragon. He's satanic. Okay? This is our false prophet. Now, he comes out of the earth, where the sea typically points us to Gentiles. The earth points us back into Israel. Again, the Jews. Okay? So this is likely a Jew. So his appearance is like a lamb. He appears harmless but his voice is like a dragon, he's not harmless at all. This is prefigured by Caiaphas. Caiaphas the high priest, and I'll show you why I think so in just a moment. Now, here we get our second beast. We get our second beast, and last chapter we had a dragon, and these are all evil beings, evil people. The Bible is always putting the enemies of God in the bestial world. For example, Satan appears in Genesis 3 as a serpent. You have in Genesis 4, uh, Cain is told that sin is crouching at the door like a lion ready to devour you. And Cain, of course, is a bad figure for us. You have Goliath, who is described as one wearing scaled armor. 
the scales of a serpent is what he's described as. And as he appro approaches David, as he approaches David, he says, am I a dog that you come after me with sticks? He puts himself in the bestial realm. In fact, I want to turn to these passages because of what David says in these passages. When David's trying to convince Saul that he should be the one to fight Goliath, he says this, your servant used to keep his father's sheep when, and when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb out of the flock, I went after it and I struck it and I delivered the lamb from its mouth. And when it arose against me, I caught it by its beard and I struck and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, seeing that he has defied the armies of the living God. Now, David says, here's why I know I'm gonna win. Because he's like the lion and he's like the bear and I always beat the lion and I always beat the bear. What does David know that Saul doesn't? David knows his Bible. He knows in Genesis three, Adam was told rule over the animals. So when the enemies of God are put into the animal world and described as beasts, the automatic thing that you should know is you have victory over that enemy. You have victory over that enemy. You're commanded by God to rule over the bestial world. And it's the failure to rule the beast that had Adam and Eve fall. Adam and Eve had the authority to cast Satan out of the garden because he's a serpent and they have authority over the serpent. Why are we fallen right now? Because they allowed the serpent authority over them against the order that God has established. And so now this fallen world is very much opposed to the order that God has established. And we as Christians have to learn that order, follow that order, teach that order, demonstrate that order, model that order to save as many people as we can in the midst of a corrupt generation. Now, I'll get to Caiaphas in a moment. Now this beast is a counterfeit Holy Spirit, the third person of the anti-Trinity here. <clears throat> it says in verse uh, two, and he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. So this third person of the anti-Trinity directs worship towards the second person of the anti-Trinity. Isn't that exactly what the Holy Spirit does for Jesus? He directs worship to Christ. Same job description as the Holy Trinity has the unholy Trinity. He performs great signs that come down. He performs great signs so that even, he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. So he's a false prophet, and specifically he's being a false witch prophet. Which prophet is he imitating there, calling fire down from heaven? I'm trying to read lips here. Elijah. Elijah had the power to call down fire from heaven, um, consume his enemies. Remember the battle with the prophets of Baal? He called down fire from heaven. So I wouldn't be surprised if this false prophet literally calls out to the false god Satan to commands fire to come down from heaven. It happens and people believe. You know, they, they believe based on that stuff, these false signs. Now, he's a false Elijah in this context. 
Verse 14, and he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth <clears throat> to make, telling those on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. Okay, so now he's commanded to make an image of the beast. Now, here's what God says about idols. It's Isaiah chapter 40. They're to make an image of the beast. You should be thinking of the golden calf incident, things like that. But here's what God says about these images. <coughs> Excuse me. He'll say, verse 18 of Isaiah 40, to whom then will you liken God? Remember they said, who is like the beast? And now here God's saying, to whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare him to? The workman molds an image, the goldsmith overspreads it with gold, and the silversmith casts silver chains. Whoever is too impoverished for such a contribution chooses a tree that will not rot. He seeks for himself a skillful workman to prepare a carved image that will not totter. So they build for themselves these images, and God will say, you made eyes on them, but they can't see. You gave them a mouth, but they cannot speak. Here it says you got to build them so that they don't totter. Can you imagine if we woke up one day and found out that God tottered? Okay, they're worried about their gods tottering. Now, look what else happens with this image back in Revelation. It says in verse 15, he was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. So here's a major miracle being done by the Antichrist or the false prophet. He, he's able to give breath to the image of the beast. So now this image starts speaking. Unlike all the other idols, this one starts speaking and in his speaking, he causes many that would not worship it the image of the beast to be killed. So now, what does this deal with the breath, giving breath to the image of the beast? Well, Jeremiah chapter 10 is my reference point here. Verse 14 says, everyone is dull hearted without knowledge. Every metalsmith is put to shame by an image for his molded image is falsehood and there is no breath in them. So, there's no breath in these images that are made, but this false prophet makes an image of the Antichrist. And in that image, he's, makes, he has the power to make it breathe, and not only breathe, but to speak. So this is a false imitation here of, of, of life coming from non-life. And it, it's given power to speak of all things. Now, and if you do not worship this image of the beast, you'll be killed. Okay, so now we get the typology of Nebuchadnezzar. Remember, he makes the huge statue, or was it uh, Cyrus? One of the Daniel kings that makes the huge, huge statue, and he orders the people to worship that statue. And if you don't, then you're uh, thrown into the fire. Okay, so that was Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's story. All right, now. So this miraculous power, he has this miraculous power, as we go back to John 13 and finish up, 
He has this miraculous power. And um, it says that these miracles, listen, these miracles, why do so many people get fooled? Well, here's the thing. Throughout biblical history, people have been able to imitate miracles often. Okay, let me refer you to Exodus 7, 8, and 9. The magicians in Pharaoh's court were able to imitate Moses' miracles up to a certain point, correct? So those were false prophets able to imitate the work of God up to a certain point in those plagues. In Deuteronomy chapter 13, 1 through 5, this is important enough to actually turn there. Deuteronomy chapter 13, first five verses. I'm sorry, hold on one second. Yes, Deuteronomy 13, one through five. Okay. God says this, if there arises among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams and he gives you a sign or a wonder and the sign or the wonder comes to pass of which he spoke to you saying, let us go after other gods which you have not known and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul you shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice and you shall serve him and hold fast to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has spoken in order to turn you away from the Lord your God who brought you out of land in Egypt and redeemed you from the house of bondage to entice you from the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall put away the evil from your midst. Okay, so here God says, yes, people will imitate signs and wonders, but listen to their message. Is their message promoting the God of Israel or not? If they're promoting other gods, then how serious of an offense is that? God says you gotta kill them. That evil cannot be in the land when they're promoting other gods in your midst. Even if they're able to do signs and wonders, you test those signs and wonders by their message. Their message will give them away there. Okay. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus doing the speaking. Matthew chapter 7, verse 22 and 23. These aren't your notes because literally as Mike was talking, I was remembering these things and trying to write them down real quick. So I just scratched them down for myself. That's why I don't have bookmarks on them right now. But Matthew 7, 22, 20, 23, Jesus says, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. These are false signs and wonders. They say, even though they say in your name, he's saying <coughs> they're not legitimate at all. Matthew chapter 24, Matthew 24, verse 24. 
in this period of time of the great tribulation, Jesus says this, for false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I've told you beforehand. So Jesus says this very dynamic we're reading about in Revelation 13, Jesus said that's gonna happen. He told us already in Matthew chapter 24 that these signs and wonders would indeed happen. Paul mentions it also in 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Verse 9, he says this. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders. He'll come with power, signs, and lying wonders. So, would you and I be surprised at his miraculous power? At this point, no. Will you and I be here when he does it? No. All right. So anyways, Moving on to the conclusion of our study tonight. Verse 16. He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand and on their foreheads, and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Okay, so we talked about that marking. This is also an imitation of God. In Revelation chapter seven, verse three, God marks on the foreheads those who are his, right? So now we have the false prophet marking those who are his, okay? So here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is a number of a man. His number is 666. There is one manuscript from antiquity that says his number is 616. 616, but the overwhelming number of manuscripts all agree that it's 666 is the number of the beast. Now, many people have undertaken ways of trying to figure out what this number is telling us. Many, many people have done that. Now, including in this is believing that Rome is going to be part of the Antichrist picture they note that the, the Roman numerals that are less than 666 um, are the numbers 1, 5, 10, 50, 100, and 500. And if you add up those numbers, they equal 666. So that makes them point to a Roman ruler. Okay. Uh, I think it may be coincidence. Just like people say 36 times the beast is mentioned in an evil way throughout the Bible. 36 times throughout the Bible, beast is mentioned in an evil way. And if you take one plus two plus three plus four plus five, all the way up to 36, it equals 666. Some people just need to get a job, if you ask me. All right. Now, there's numerous, numerous attempts to figure out 666. If you take Caesar Nero's name um, from the Latin, how it was translated from the Greek and the Septuagint and different things like that, his name adds up to 666 as well, all right? So there's lots and lots of ways. What is my way of trying to figure it out, by the way? Can I see your mouth say, look in the Bible? Look in the Bible. So where do we see the number 666? Great sign, that is a wonderful sign. Scripture interpreting scripture, yes. Now, where do we see 666 in the Bible? 
The only time we see it that I'm aware of is in 1 Kings chapter 10. So we'll go to 1 Kings chapter 10. And in verse 14, we read this. This is Solomon. It says, the weight of gold that came to Solomon yearly was 666 talents of gold. Now, is that a stretch for me to say that that's saying that this has something to do with royal disobedience? Why is this royal disobedience? Well, I asked you to compare it to Deuteronomy 17, 17. Okay. You guys see I'm doing some serious homework during the week. Hope you know. All right. 17, 17 says this. Neither shall he, the king, multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. And then what does 1 Kings brag about? Solomon has greatly multiplied wives, and when it actually gives you the amount of gold that he's excessively accumulated, it is our number 666. So I think Solomon prefigures this beast in the sense of royal disobedience to God. This is royal sin uh, we're talking about. Because, you know, Solomon's life is, I wouldn't want to be, I wouldn't want the record of my life to end like Solomon's. It's not a pretty picture that the Bible paints of him. We consider him a great king and the wisest man ever, and he gets a lot of good accolades, but his final report is not good at all. So um, there we get that, that negative number for him as well. So if you compare 1 Kings 10, 14 to Deuteronomy 17, 17, it's the only indications of a 666 in there, except there's one other indication of something that I would say, I can say with the most surety is pure evil. Get your pens ready. This is a doozy. It is none other than the monster energy drinks that are out there. Now, why do I say that? Because... If you can picture a monster energy drink right now, you see the claws of the beast, the claws of the monster making the M. Now, with our American minds, we just kind of see an M made by the claws of the monster. But if you were a Hebrew, those three strikes of the M are very clearly sixes for them. It's their letter Vav, which is their number six. As clear as a six looks to you and I is how that would look to a Hebrew. That's a six, six, six in Hebrew across that can. Now, coincidence? Well, let's go a little deeper. The O of monster energy drinks has a cross in it. You go, oh, that's holy. Well, every time you take a drink, what are you doing? You're flipping that cross upside down every time you take a drink from that can. It's another satanic figure. If that's not enough, 666 here we just got in our text is the number of the beast, correct? What's the logo or the motto of Monster Energy Drinks? Unleash the beast in you. All right, so there's three strikes against Monster Energy Drinks. If you're a CEO of Monster and I don't realize you're listening now, I somewhat apologize, but I'd say just call it the Lamb's Energy Drink or something like that and see what happens. So... I think it's very intentional. I can't imagine the clarity of those claws being a 666, the cross that gets flipped upside down every time somebody drinks or pours it, and you actually are encouraging people to unleash the beast. Of all things you can say, 
It's called the beast. And that's the number of the beast is 666. So anyways, you should be drinking water anyways. Uh, just so you know, living water is preferable to the rest. All right. So with that gospel message uh, delivered to you, not from Monster Energy Company, I assure, assure you. All right. So ladies and gentlemen, we have weeded through the dragon, the beast from the sea, the beast from the earth. The dragon is, can't hear you, but right now you're saying Satan, and he plays the father's role in the Trinity as an anti-Trinity. The Antichrist, which I think is prefigured by Judas Iscariot, is um, the beast from the sea, um, and the false prophet. Oh, I got Caiaphas to talk to you guys about. Why do I think Caiaphas prefigures this false prophet? I'm glad I thought of this. Quickly turn with me to um, John's Gospel, chapter 11. John chapter 11. So much of Revelation is told in the Gospel of John. And when we get to chapter 17 and 19, you'll see that in wonderful, wonderful ways. Uh, if you have to miss any weeks, don't let it be the week of chapter 17 or 19. Those are my favorites. Now, um, <clears throat> Caiaphas is a false prophet. Let's read in John chapter 12. Let's start in verse, where did I write this down? John 12, uh, I don't see my notes, but anyway, let's pick it up in, no, I already did John, John 11. I'm sorry, John 11. You guys see where I put John 11 on the notes? Oh, well, I'll find it. All right, let's see here. Okay, we're going to start in verse... Let's start in verse uh, 45. John eleven forty-five. says that many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things Jesus did. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, what shall we do for this man works many signs? If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. We talked about that a week or two ago. And one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year. Now what's the main job of the high priest every year? Slaughter the Passover lamb. Okay, so this is our slaughter the Passover lamb guy. He said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it's expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not the whole nation should perish. Now he said that saying, here's why we should kill Jesus because if people follow him, they will perish. Well, he said the right words, but he had the wrong people in mind. Jesus does have to die so that folks like you and I won't perish. So he had the right idea, the right words, but the wrong idea behind the words. So guess what that makes him? Well, verse 51 says, he did not say this on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. He prophesied it. He prophesied something that is true, generally speaking, but literally he got the group that would die wrong. So he's a false prophet. He's our prefiguring our false prophet. 
and he is the high priest that year. He is the high priest that year. And it says he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So this is for us too. Now, <clears throat> Caiaphas's main job, he's a false prophet whose main job is to slaughter the Passover lamb. Well, what timing he has for being the high priest? Because the lamb of God has shown up and he fulfills his job to slaughter that lamb, doesn't he? Okay, he, has the, he is the one in authority overseeing the trial, the conviction, the death of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. And he did that as high priest that year. That's why as, <clears throat> as holy an event Passover is, the fact that their high priest every Passover would slaughter a lamb was in a very, a very kind of dark way foreshadowing that the, the high priest in Jesus' day would also slaughter a Passover lamb but it would be the son of God that year. So <clears throat> Caiaphas is called a prophet by the apostle John, and he is a false prophet that slaughters the lamb of God. He is a prefigurement of our false prophet, just like Judas prefigures the antichrist. So with Satan and Judas and Caiaphas prefigure the, holy trin the unholy trinity, the anti-trinity that we see in Revelation, fulfilled in Satan, and in uh, the beast from the sea and the beast from the earth. And that'll wrap up chapter 13, and let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this time together. Thank you for showing us, Lord, revealing to us what you have revealed. And ultimately, Lord, that that lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world is our savior and our God. He's our Messiah, Lord. He is our, he is our all in all. He's all that we need. In the midst of Satan, in the midst of an antichrist, in the midst of a false prophet, that lamb that was slain is all that we need. And Lord, we want to be ever mindful of the importance of that lamb. So we thank you, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, question number one reads, are there any revelation scriptures that correlate to the current outbreak that Israel is in right now? Well, um, I mean, the hatred between Israel and the surrounding regions is throughout all the Bible. Um, you know, we're talking about our Philistines or the Palestinians now, um, Jebusites, Perizzites, um, Hittites, Amorites. I mean, uh, it, the, the nations that surround Israel have hated them from the beginning. They've been at risk from them from the beginning. So particularly as it regards Hamas in 2021, I don't think there's anything in the scripture to point us to 2021 and Hamas, just the ongoing hatred uh, that goes on there and the disagreement over the land and all of that, um, to me, just shows the trustworthiness of our scriptures, that, that where is that coming from if it's not from those stories, you know, that we read about. So uh, that's why people have different views on Israel. Even within Christendom, there's different views on, you know, do we protect that nation or are, are believers the, the, the true Israel now 
and, and not the land. So those are different categories of understanding scripture that fall within Orthodox Christianity. There's nothing unorthodox about either one of those views. I'm sure one's right and one's wrong, but it doesn't deny the essential truths of scripture, whichever way you fall on that. So I, I don't think anything specifically. I just think if anybody's going, why do they hate each other so much? I think if our book is a book to show them to say, it's, it's, here's the origins of it, here's why, and it hasn't changed and it may never change, so. Thank you, Pastor Bill. Uh, so question number two is in reference to verse 13, as well as verse 17. And just a reminder, this is from last week, so this would be chapter 12, not chapter 13. So chapter 12, verses 13 and 17. Uh, in verse 13, which woman is this? And why was the woman persecuted that gave birth to the male child, the, the church? Uh, I thought we were raptured by now. And in verse 17, it still sounds like we're there. The woman is Israel, it's not the church. Uh, the woman is the nation of Israel. We went through the three mothers last week. Uh, Mary of Nazareth, Israel as a mother, and the earth as a mother. And so the, when the dragon is cast to the earth and persecuting the woman, the, the church is in heaven. This is unsaved Israel that many of them will become saved, but they will at the expense of their own lives. But the dragon is waging war against Israel. That's who the woman is. It's not the raptured church. It's unsaved Israel at the moment of chapter 12, verse 13. And verse 17, same, same story, yeah, verse 17. Thank you, Pastor Bill. The next question reads, what assurance do we have that the fall will not happen again? Can more angels rebel after we are in heaven? Um, it would certainly seem like the answer is no. I, don't, I think that when mankind was created, the angels were locked into their eternal state. Fallen angels stayed fallen, good angels stayed good. Um, that seems to be their time where their destiny is determined, just like our death is a time where our destiny is determined. So um, certainly we don't read about any falling from our heaven, our eternal state. Um, I don't think anything will change in that, in that. Just like we have the security of our salvation while walking the earth to save people, we also have this, certainly the security of our salvation while in heaven. And I think that goes the same with the angelic world that uh, uh, scholars try to pinpoint when was there a point in time where the fallen angels are fallen and the good ones are not. And the most that I've read on it, it points to our creation. And that's when Satan desired to become like God and receive our worship. And he fell in a third of the angels with him. And um, so, so uh, that would, I think, be my best attempt at that question would be answered that way. But no, we, there wouldn't be any more falling of angels. Thank you, Pastor Bill. Question number four reads, why wouldn't the unredeemed immediately receive their consequences after the second coming rather than after the tribulation? Why wouldn't the unredeemed receive their consequences immediately after the second coming rather than after the tribulation? Is that how it reads? 
um, the unredeemed, the unredeemed receive their consequences not at the second. They do receive it at the second coming, but the second coming comes after the rapture. So the rapture happens first, and then seven year tribulation, <clears throat> and then Christ comes back to usher in the millennial kingdom. So I think the order is reversed in the question. Um, the, the unredeemed um, live through the tribulation after the rapture. So the rapture happens, then the unredeemed are on the earth going through the tribulation. And then uh, whether they're a part of the millennial kingdom or not, because uh, they could be, because the millennial kingdom is not perfect. It's just that righteousness rules where uh, right now righteousness is persecuted. The Bible gives three different ideas of the word righteousness. In this fallen world, it says righteousness is persecuted. In the millennial kingdom, it says righteousness rules, but if it rules, that means it has something to rule over, which would be unrighteousness, but at least it's in charge and it's the main thing. And then in the eternal state, it says righteousness dwells. It's just all there is. It's just there all the time. So um, I think the question has the wrong order going. It should be, it should be any time now, the rapture of the church, the unredeemed on the earth still going through tribulation as part of the consequence, because that would certainly be a consequence of the unredeemed. But then the second coming of Christ at the end of the tribulation to usher in the millennial kingdom, then they would receive their consequence for, uh, upon their death, they would receive their consequence. Thank you, Pastor Bill. Uh, the next question reads, in Revelation 6 and 7, John describes seeing multitudes of souls in heaven before the throne. How do you envision souls in heaven prior to our resurrection and glorified bodies? Um, gosh, guys, tough questions. How would I envision them? I envision them much like I envisioned Adam and Eve before the fall. Uh, if, if I wonder about how did they all of a sudden realize they were naked, uh, I certainly don't think clothing just fell from them. I think that they were somehow light and they had glory about them in the form of light. And as soon as they sinned, they lost that glory and lost that covering of light and were stripped down to their, their nakedness without the light. So that's how I envision it as souls in heaven is like light, um, and I don't want you thinking Tinkerbell stuff. I don't want you thinking, um, you know, anything that's too earthly because um, you got to remember every moment in the in-between state before your body and your soul are joined together at the second coming of Christ is paradise. Jesus calls it paradise. Not many people complain in paradise. So I think we'll be just fine in that intermediate state uh, but Paul does say at the second coming, when our bodies are joined to our souls, it's a better resurrection, better than the first one where it's just our souls. So those bodies will be glorified. And uh, what that looks like, I have no idea. Just look at me. I don't have any clue what a glorified body would look like. So, um, um, but all I know is this, it's joy, it's happiness, it's love, it's free of disease and problems and pain and suffering and crying and even tears. Um, so I envision it to answer the question more directly. 
as some sort of glory light that we're dwelling in, that we would look like until we get our glorified bodies. <clears throat> Thank you, Pastor Bill. Uh, the last question of the evening came in from several different people from several different perspectives. So I'm going to kind of leave it more as an open-ended statement and just allow you to sort of speak into it. The numerous people sending questions uh, still confused with things like when, when Satan rebelled, how could he rebel in heaven? If, if, if we as humans have sin and we're not allowed into heaven, how is it that Satan uh, was able to sin while he was in heaven? Uh, and, and just can you address that whole situation and just uh, give people some resources where they might be able to find some more information? So, okay, that's a great question. Here's my best understanding of this. Because you do see Satan coming and going from heaven, whether it's the book of Job, uh, there seems to be some indications in Psalms and so forth. But Job alone, Satan presents himself before the Lord in heaven. Okay, so what's up with that type of thing? Well, here's my best understanding is this. First of all, the Bible refers to the place where people go upon death as the place of the dead, and they call it Sheol. So Sheol consists of both the redeemed and the unredeemed, the comforted and the punished are all in Sheol. And Jesus most explicitly explains this in his story of the rich man and Lazarus. He says the rich man is in, is in hell, punished, that's a section of Sheol, but another section of Sheol is Abraham's bosom where Lazarus is being comforted, okay? So now, Jesus, I believe, refers to the good part of Sheol as paradise when he promises the thief on the cross that today you'll be with me in paradise. Now, now, um, heaven where Satan seems to come and go through the Bible, uh, will be separate from Sheol, separate from Abraham's bosom, separate from paradise, a different place where Satan does come and go from, but is not in the presence of the redeemed dead uh, in Abraham's bosom, in paradise. Uh, now, you see in Revelation 12 that Satan's cast out of heaven. So now that Satan's out of heaven and gone from heaven, in the future, when Revelation 12 takes place, then I believe we get a new heavens and a new earth. And part of the being a new heaven is it's a Satan-free heaven. It's, 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 uh, this is likely where Jesus descended to set the captives free to have them go up into heaven from Abraham's bosom. Okay, And I don't think you should ever understand the captives of being people sent to hell. Um, we are all sold into slavery, to bondage and sin, and we're set free um, by Christ. So I would understand it as Satan's free to come and go where God is in heaven. God's everywhere, by the way, so it's not restricted to heaven. But Sheol, Abraham's bosom, uh, the place of comfort and rest um, that Lazarus went to, I believe we still may go there. That, that's paradise that the thief has promised. That may be where my dead loved ones in Christ are right now. And, um, and not until Satan's cast from heaven that we get the new heavens and new earth. 
And uh, I, I th speaking of new heavens, by the way, I believe I'm going to be having some new material for my next apologetics class as I think we've come up with some scientific proof that there's going to be a new heavens. Um, and this is a scientific uh, second law of thermodynamics stuff that just a little thing has to happen that would spark a reaction throughout the universe that would change all of the law of physics and create a completely new heavens. And that's solely based on science. They're not trying to teach. Um, they're not trying to teach the end of the world as far as the Bible goes. They are teaching the end of the universe as far as science goes. And they came up with, a, in an instant, at any time, literally before I'm done with this lesson tonight, energy could shift in a way that would usher in a new physics to create a new heavens. So it's just interesting how science, as they discover more and more and more, they actually keep going back to the Bible. It happens all the time, and that's what I show in my apologetics class. One of you actually emailed me, when am I teaching apologetics again? I had no idea it'd be tonight. But um, the full class, uh, I have no idea when that will be. So I don't know. We'll, we'll see. we got to get through Revelation at this point. Those are great questions, guys. Have a great night and have a great week. We'll see you.